0: Lord, we are humbled by this passage, by the truth that it contains, revealing the the heart of a sinful king. And yet at the same time, Lord, by the the joy that it reveals, that the plague can be averted by a sacrifice. Lord, help us to wrap our hands around this text, Lord, to be to be challenged by your Holy Spirit through your word to see you in your glory, and Lord, to be changed to believe, Lord, that you are a great God and Savior, and, Lord, to reflect that in our lives as we live for you. In your precious name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to ask you a question. If you're going to end a book, how are you typically going to end it? Well, in our Disney culture, you usually end the book by, and they lived what? Happily ever after. Now, that is nice for you know, a book, it's nice for a movie, um, but usually in our context, in our culture, we don't like stories or movies that end on a downer. In fact, it's kind of unusual for a story to end on a downer. Usually things are wrapped up. I mean, think about this. When was the last time you read a novel that just ended on a downer and you just like left? Or you went to watch a movie, you saw it on Netflix, and I'm not talking about you know, binge videos or TV series that always end with cliffhangers that are keeping you going. I'm just talking about a standalone movie. It usually ends with resolve. But when we come to this text of Scripture, as we read what's happening in this story here at the end, where the anger of the Lord is kindled. You're, you're you know, right away asking yourself the question, oh, this, is this really the way you want to end this book, Samuel? Is this how you want us to, to, to remember the life of David? Kind of like, bleh, he sinned again. But I want to challenge you, and I, I want us to think carefully today that there is a specific reason why we have this account here in this text. You may be perplexed, but I want us to push through that concern or that caution and and to to clear this up. Now remember, the last section of 2 Samuel that is narrative is chapter 20, where we have Sheba's rebellion. What we have here at the end of 2 Samuel are are six episodes from the life of David at various places in his life that the writer is, is giving us that encapsulate who David is, and are presenting him as God's chosen king, who is greater than the people's king, who was whom? Saul. He's saying, listen, this is the one after God's own heart. This is the one that in God's heart, he chose to be his king, to rule over Israel, and under his leadership. God raised up that nation to be so strong that even enemies came and bowed toward David because they recognized there was something going on with his leadership and his kingship and his kingdom. And so all of these accounts are given to reinforce the fact to the original reader and then ultimately to us that David is truly God's righteous king. Now, as we walk through this text, I want us to to consider it in light of this proposition. That what what Samuel is doing here is revealing for us God's true king. And that will have impact on us. There is a sense in which we are ending here with a bang. And I just I'm am thrilled that we get to walk through this text together. Because this is powerful. Who is this king? What is he like? Now, the reality is that all through First and 2 Samuel, the king, God's chosen king, has been on display. We've seen David in all sorts of different circumstances. But here, we see something more about the revelation of God's true king. So let's begin by thinking, first of all, about the problem of David's sin the problem of David's sin notice how this how this chapter begins again the anger of the lord was kindled against israel that word again <laughs> again which lets you know this is not the first time this anger of the lord being kindled against israel has happened before time and time and time again in the record of scripture Yes, God is angry with the world and its rebellion. God is angry with the nations and their idolatry. But hear this, God is also especially angry with his own people when they choose to ignore him and sin against him. Why? Because they know better. They know God. They've seen God. They've heard about God's ways and his his work. So it's no wonder that Scripture says judgment begins where? In the house of God. Now, sometimes we're so consumed with what's happening out there when God wants us to pay attention with how we are living, how we are reflecting Christ in our lives and in the context of our church so that we can be a light to those around us. If we are to go back to 2 Samuel 6, if you remember, we find God's anger kindled there against Uzzah. And remember, Uzzah was a, was a great guy, and he was there helping the cart being moved from one part of the country to Jerusalem, or from, yeah, to Jerusalem. And the problem was, though, they didn't follow God's plan. Instead of using the, the poles and carrying it on their shoulders, they, they took the, the Philistine model and put the ark on a cart. And as they were bringing it along, the cart hit a bump in the road and the the ark started to fall. And Uzzah, caring for the ark because it was the ark of the covenant of the Lord, reaches out to touch the ark and to, to stay it so it wouldn't be defiled by the ground. But his mistake was thinking that he was more clean than the ground. God is holy. You are not. God gave instructions about how the ark was to be carried. And Israel chose to ignore that. David chose to ignore that. And as a result, Uzzah is killed by God in judgment on the spot. And as a result of that, there's a sacrifice. And um, David, of course, had learned his lesson. But the hard way. And friends... Even in, in, in David's life and the history of Israel, it has, this passage in particular has been the subject of a lot of discussion. A lot of ink has been spilled trying to answer the unknowns of this passage. And I want, I want to just challenge you. Be careful with the unknowns. Here's what I'm talking about. What had Israel done to stir up God's anger against them? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Are you okay with that? <laughs> or, why does God incite David to take a census of the people? We don't know why God chooses to do that. Why is it stated in the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 21.1 that it was Satan that incited David against Israel, it seems, to contradict this passage? There's a very simple answer for that, and we'll get to that. Or, What was it that David did that was so sinful? And I tell you, a lot of people have come up with ideas. It could be pride because he he, he wanted to see how great his army was and all sorts of different things. But hear this, the text doesn't tell us. And if the text doesn't tell us, then maybe we shouldn't spend so much time trying to figure it out or come up with some ideas as to what it could be. We can come up with all sorts of speculation, but the point of the passage is not to identify what that particular sin was. They're all good questions. They're worthy of consideration, but we've got to be careful not to be dogmatic where the Scriptures are not dogmatic. Now, in the parallel passage, chapter 21, what you saw up on the screen there, that first time when God was angry with Israel, we are told in that passage why God is angry. He was angry because of the blood guilt with the people of Gibeah. And there had to be atonement for the way Israel had treated them. And and it was very clear what the issue was. But here, in this other section, this last section, we're not told. All we know is the fact that God was angry with Israel, and that should be enough. Are we okay with that? So here's what we can be sure of. First of all, there is sin in the camp. By the camp, it's simply saying, in Israel, in the people of God. As we look carefully, we can come to some proper conclusions. Number one, God was angry with Israel. Again, we don't need an explanation from God. He doesn't answer to us. And, and because this text is silent, we really don't need to know why the Lord was anger, Lord's anger was kindled. But it's very important that we know that the Lord's anger was kindled. Okay, So it, it was kindled for some reason, and we need to leave it there. But secondly, David didn't know about God's anger. Let's consider what we're told here. We're told the Lord incited David against Israel. The Lord didn't speak to Israel and say, I'm angry with you. And I'm angry with Israel. What we have here is the narrator telling us what is going on behind the scenes. And then in that parallel passage, 1 Chronicles 21.1, which was written, by the way, about 400 years later, looking back and interpreting this passage, it says, Satan incited David against Israel. So was it the Lord that incited David, or was it Satan? And the answer may surprise you. The answer is both. Now hear this. It was the Lord who incited David, but Satan then came in and incited David, but ultimately David would make the choice himself. Now this is nothing unusual. saying, what are you talking about, Pastor Rod? This is strange. How can this be? Let me give you a couple of examples why this is not unusual in the text of Scripture. The story of Joseph ends in chapter 50 in verse 20. And what does Joseph say to his brothers? As for you, you meant what? Evil against me. But God meant it for what? Good. God had a plan. He had good in mind. But the brothers, they were going to mean evil. And they did act sinfully toward their brother. And we can say, well, he also acts sinfully toward them. That was all part of the package. God was decreeing it, but they acted sinfully even in the midst of that decree. And so it's very, very clear here that they were responsible for their actions, but God was behind the whole thing. It's important to see that. Not only that, think about the story, of, obviously, of Jesus and Judas. He handed Jesus over for 30 pieces of silver. He acted according to his will. And although it was Satan who was also at work in him, it was God orchestrating his plan through both Satan and Judas. Okay? I mean, two, two examples. Here's a third one. Israel and their response to Jesus in Acts 2, 23. This is when Peter is speaking on the day of Pentecost. And this is not something you typically say to your audience, but listen to what he says. Verse 23 of Acts 2. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Is that pretty clear? God decreed, he planned, this was his purpose, right? This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan of foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God was decreeing it, but the Jews were responsible for their actions in bringing about what God had decreed. Now friends, this is, this is hard for us sometimes to wrap our hands around, isn't it? To think it through. God is not the author of evil, but God does bring about circumstances where he is testing us. Now David, thirdly, is acting out of his own will. So David is not aware of what's happening in the background. All he knows is, you know what, I think we're going to do a census. And so, he decides we're going to do a census. And he tells Joab, he tells the commanders. But God was going to bring about his discipline on Israel through David's own sinfulness. Hence, Satan is involved inciting David to move against Israel, but David is acting out of his own will let me put it in summary then. The punishment against Israel for their sin, which is unnamed, was to be meted out by David through the taking of a census. That was God's plan, but it was also David's doing. So there's sin in the camp, but there's also now sin in the king. Now specifically, notice what happens here. Joab shows up. He's the leader of the armies. And he gives what I call a reasoned opposition here. He counsels David against this plan. Listen to his words. May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the King still see it. But why does my Lord the King delight in this thing? There was something about what David was saying here in putting the senses together that Joab didn't like. Now, hear this. It's not wrong to have a census. There were times when it was wrong, but just having a census wasn't bad in and of itself. But there are things that you're looking for in the census that can be sinful. And Joab here is challenging David, and not only is Joab doing that, but also the commanders counseled with Joab against David not to do this. But David's will prevails, and the census takes place from Dan to Beersheba, which means they went all over the territory. It took 10 months, and the result, we see there, 800,000 valiant men of Israel, 500,000 valiant men of Judah. Now, there may be some, some nuance here by identifying the, the valiant men that, that David was looking for, soldiers, men who are ready to fight. And as such, he was no longer trusting in God to be the one who was fighting for him. But we're not told that. But then we also see what I'm calling humble consideration, because later in the text, we find David saying, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. It's clear from David's words that he knew that he had sinned greatly. In what he had done, and he had acted foolishly. And what Samuel wants us to see here is that David sinned with his eyes wide open. He had counsel from Joab, which isn't always a good thing, right? From the story of 2 Samuel. But it was good counsel and the commanders, but David would press on. And so Satan didn't cause David to sin. God didn't make David sin. David made David sin. Now, friends, he knew what he wanted to do. Joab and the rest of his commanders counseled him away, but David ignored their counsel. He pressed on deliberately and willfully, fully aware of his actions. Now, friends, hear this. In a world where triggers are becoming the norm... We need to be reminded of this reality. The kind of triggers I'm talking about, it's a new word, it might be the word of, of the year, right? But the kind of triggers I'm talking about are the ones in society that now claim to incite people to act and behave in certain ways. Triggers that produce anger and violence. You know, I, this person was on a campus somewhere and they said a word, and all of a sudden, whoa! there's a big riot going on. Well, this all happened. Why? Because they said this word. Or, Sometimes these triggers produce discouragement and depression. Now hear this. In the economy of God and his word, you cannot blame anyone else for how you behave. You are responsible for your actions. Yes, you may have had terrible parents. God knows that. You may have lived through, uh, in a rough neighborhood, God knows that too. You may have been bullied at school, God knows that. Others may have taken advantage of you, God knows that. On the other hand, you may have grown up in a healthy environment, you may have been given a great education, you may have lived in wealth and comfort, your parents may have been successful, your family may have had influence in society All those things may be true, but none of them are excuses for your sinful rebellions, selfish and arrogant behavior. You can't blame those things for choices that you are making. Now, those things can help explain the temptations you have and the tests you face, but you are still responsible for your sinful behavior. Society doesn't believe that. But God does. And that's all you're going to find throughout scripture. So God, hear this, is inciting a test for David. But Satan is inciting here a test, but also adding this component of temptation. Let me give you an explanation. So, how many of you went to school? Good. I'm glad. Glad to hear that. It's really good. There should be everyone audience participation there, okay? (laughs) You all went to school. And in school, you had a test. And just imagine you had this, this test. You're in high school... And, and you have this really important test, and you've, you've studied really hard, your teacher's given you, a, a stu- you know, some study guide, and you've worked hard, and you, you want to do well, and, and, and your, maybe your scholarship or something is, is riding on how well you do on this test, and you're like, yeah, I'm just going to give it to God, I'm going I'm to work hard, and, and, and the test, understand, is, is neutral. You just need to take it, and you need to do the best you can. And then you get to school, because you want to get there a little bit early and get yourself ready, and your friend comes, and he says, hey, I've got this cheat sheet here. I made an extra copy for you. And he shows you how to hide it so you can use it, so you can do well on the test. Now, if you take the cheat sheet and you use that, you have given into temptation and you have failed the test, regardless of the score that you got. You see, the test is neutral. But in a test, there are always temptations. With your eyes, with things that you write down, that you want to cheat with, the test is neutral. God gives us tests. Satan comes, and he brings temptations to those tests. You understand that? So here's how God is working. He says, what I'm doing here is is a neutral thing. David, here is a test. Although David doesn't realize it. Satan comes, and he's like, I'm not going to leave it at a test. I'm going to tempt David now to do this. And what does David do? He fails miserably. He gave in to Satan's temptation, now he stands guilty before God for his own willful actions. I have sinned greatly. I have acted foolishly, he says. Now, that is David's sin problem. Let's consider now the progress of David's repentance. That seems like a little strange way to say it. How do you progress here in repentance? Well, I I think as we press on to this passage, we're going to see this progress. It's a messy business at first, but as we press on and we consider and reflect on it, it, it becomes a beautiful picture of God's mercy toward his king. Notice David is a repentant king he's a repentant king verse 10 david's heart struck him after he had numbered the people and david said to the lord i have sinned greatly in what i have done but now O lord take away the iniquity of your servant for i have done very foolishly so first of all almost as almost as he hears the the conclusion of the census David, this is who you have in Israel, and this is who you have in Judah. It's almost as if his heart struck him, and he realized what he has done. He doesn't need now a prophet of God to come and confront him over his sin. He doesn't need a story from that prophet to reveal the depravity of his heart, as he did when Nathan confronted him with his sin with Bathsheba. No, although David was still sinful, hear this, his heart... Was making progress in repentance. He is now more sensitive to his sin. His heart is struck because of it. So he speaks to the Lord. You see the progress here. I mean, this is one of the things that's 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 kind of in neon here. We know the story of David and Bathsheba. We know the story of Nathan coming and saying, "You know, here is this lost sheep." And you know, this guy came and he stole it, and and it pricks David's heart. And he confesses and he he comes before God and he he seeks forgiveness. But in this story. No prophet is needed, no story is needed. Why? Because David has learned to be sensitive in his own heart to his God. Now friends, that is a sign of spiritual maturity. We don't measure our spiritual maturity by things like, how often do I go to church? But of course, a spiritually mature person does that. We don't measure spiritual maturity by how much of the Bible I'm reading or how much I pray or how, how much I give or, or serve, but a, a spiritually mature person, a mature person does all those things. Now, what we see is real and genuine growth in godliness when we are sensitive to the sin in our own heart and we come confessing our sin and repenting before God. And so now David turns to God, confessing his sin. Hear what David says I have sinned greatly. I have acted foolishly. Please take away my sin. This repentant king is appealing to God for mercy, to, to remove that sin, to take away his iniquity. Now, friends, there is a Christian movement that's been going around for a while. You may not have run up against it, it's more in Australia. Um, and it's making its way, of course, in Christian circles as all false teaching does. But it's a movement that basically says that Christians don't need to confess their sin to God because they are justified, and as a result of their justification, they're totally holy and clean. Now, friends, there's an element of truth to that. Justification declares you holy. As we sang about today, we are clothed with the robes of Christ's righteousness. When Jesus looks down at us, he says, you are clean. But that doesn't mean that we've stopped sinning. We continue to sin. And so the the scripture teaches us that we're justified and sinful at the same time. We're covered with the righteousness of Christ, but we are also sinful. Just think about it with me. Can a believer offend God? What's the answer? Yes. Can a believer push God away? Yes. Can a believer fail to please God? What? Yes. Can a believer do something to harm their relationship with God? What's the answer? Yes. And I think one of the best ways to kind of describe this picture is to think of the institution of marriage. Now, I know it's an imperfect illustration because especially in our country where marriages are, 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 are falling apart and there's, there's great divorce. But I want you to think about how it's supposed to be. When a couple stands before a congregation and before God and they commit to one another, they are married. That is their position. And they go on their honeymoon and they have their first argument. Don't tell me you didn't have your first argument on your honeymoon. (laughs) That argument doesn't mean they're no longer married. They're still married. That is their condition. That is their identity. But now, because they have sinned against one another, they need to reconcile. They need to restore that relationship back to where it needs to be. And that's really a picture of what's going on here. We are God's children. He has declared us righteous. But when we sin, we restore our relationship with him through confession Through repentance. That's why Scripture says in 1 John 1 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a verse of Scripture given and directed to believers. So, David is a repentant king. But notice also, David is a responsible king. Conviction and confession naturally result in consequence. Oh, we don't like that. We want forgiveness without the consequence. But God isn't like that. In other words, justice has to be meted out for sin. And God does give David, mercy. But mercy isn't without consequence. Forgiveness doesn't remove the need for justice. Pardon doesn't negate discipline. So the word of the Lord comes to David after a night of prayer through the prophet Gad. And here's what he says. David, you must choose one of the three following consequences. Now notice carefully what the text says. And when David arose in the morning after a night of prayer... The word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David seer, saying, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, Three three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. Now, what's going on here? What is God doing here? The emphasis here is on you, David. He's making sure, first of all, that David is taking responsibility for his own actions. Number two, he's making sure that David is acting on behalf of the people of God. Number three, he's making sure, or making it clear that David is responsible for their suffering. Hear this again. When the king acts, Israel acts. The king is the federal head, the representative of the people Israel. Just like Adam in the garden is a representative of mankind, Adam sinned, we all sin. David is king, he represents Israel. Israel had sinned, David had sinned. David, you are responsible by virtue of what you have done, and I'm using now your census and what was sinful in that to bring judgment now against Israel. This is where the kindling now is bearing fruit, and judgment now is going to be meted out. As goes Adam, so goes all humanity. As goes David, so goes Israel. And so there are three choices, David. Three years of famine, three months of fleeing from your enemy, three days of plague. Which would you choose? Do, 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 do. No, thank you for that commentary, all right. We have to enter into this text and to realize what David now is thinking and how he's processing all of this. And and, and notice what we're told. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Yes, we understand that, David. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is what? Great. But let me not fall into the hand of the Lord. Of man. So David chooses the three days of pestilence, the three days of plague in the land. Why? Because he trusts God's mercy rather than man's fury. You see, David has learned to lean on the everlasting arms, even in times of judgment. And so the Lord sent pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. From one end of the kingdom to the other, 70,000 men die. But when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to apply the plague there, God said, it is enough. Stay your hand. And God may have pressed pause, but hear this. His justice has not been resolved. Friends, it's here that we see how far David's repentance has progressed. We see that David is truly a repentant king. And what surprises us here is that David is also a truly responsible king. In the face of God's wrath upon himself and the people of God, David is moved to cry out on behalf of Israel, God's flock, under his care. And here we see that David, we see David at his best as the repentant, as the responsible shepherd king who was also the righteous king. Once again, he confesses his wickedness of sin and the emphasis is on his sin. Notice what it says, verse 17. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned, I have done wickedly. And then he begins to act as a mediator on behalf of God's flock, his flock. And notice what he says, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. He's even talking about his lineage. David is now taking responsibility as the Messiah figure of that day. In effect, he is saying This, uh, in his petition to God, God, I am coming to you on behalf of these sheep you have given me, whom I brought under your wrath by my wicked and sinful uh, behavior. Please stop punishing them and punish me instead. Punish me. Take my life away. Spare these, your sheep, your people. I mean, what what a righteous king. What king does that today? Are we willing to do the same thing that David is doing here? Are we willing to place ourselves under the merciful hand of God in times of discipline? Are we willing to trust that God in his mercy is is just and, and a loving God? And do we really believe that God is good to those who lean on his everlasting arms? In 1996, in uh, the Brookfield Zoo in Chicago, a three-year-old toddler fell into the area where seven um, gorillas were kept. You may remember this. And the question was, what was going to happen to this little one? Who's going to go in there with seven gorillas? And rescue this little child. But one of the gorillas, a seven-year-old female gorilla by the name of Binti, picked up the child, cradled him in her arms, and put him down near the door where the zookeepers could get him. All caught on video. He would eventually be taken to the hospital where he would be listed in critical condition. But he was safe. He was alive with minimal bruises. And he would eventually make a full recovery. Now we may be, be surprised by that story, partly because we don't usually associate gorillas with kindness. We usually see them on Samsonite commercials, right? Now hear this. We may be grateful to Binti, but I don't think we're ready to trust her with another child. Is there a sense that we view God's mercy in the same way? We have this idea that that rather than God cradling us even in our judgment with the bumps and the bruises of our consequences, we tend to think that God will bounce us around like that Samsonite gorilla. That's how he's going to act in his mercy. Not so, David. Even in his wrath, David knew he was not facing a gorilla like God. And he is confident in God and his mercy when he says, let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great. Now get your Bibles if you would. and just I just want you to follow along with me as we just walk a little bit through the Psalms. Because what you understand here, there's a reason why David is saying what he's saying. Because David was a man A king who understood the mercy of God and he writes about it and he sings about it. And let us just allow that to come off the pages of this incredible book. See, even a just God can also be a merciful God and David knew that. Psalm 23, 6. We already read that this morning as we begin. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Psalm 25, 6. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. In other words, your mercy isn't a new thing. This is part of your character, God. This is who you are. Again, Psalm 28, 2 and 6. He says, hear the voice of, Of my pleas for mercy. And then in verse 6, blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Psalm 51 is the psalm that was written uh, reflecting on and after his sin with Bathsheba, and his repentance is clear for us to see there in verse 1 Have mercy on me, O God. That's how he starts. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your covenant promise, according to abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Psalm 57.1, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. Psalm 86.15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 145 verses eight through nine. "The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made." See, David understood that placing himself In the merciful hand of God, even in times of judgment, was far better than chancing with the hands of man. And God's answer to David comes once again through Gad the prophet. And it's an answer of mercy far greater than we can imagine, but one that will soon make sense to us all. God says, go up. Raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. And David obeys. And friends, you've heard people say confession is good for what? For the soul. But the only kind of confession that is truly good for the soul is a humble heart crying out to God for mercy based on his character and rooted in his covenant promise. So when you as a child of God are convicted and you come to God confessing your sin, you can be sure God's character hasn't changed. His mercy is from of old. And you can be sure that his promises remain true. No matter how much you've fallen on your face in sin, God through his shed blood has covenanted with you his child. You see the progress David has made in his repentance. He has grown to be a repentant, responsible, and righteous king. And now we want to move into what I'm calling the price for God's atonement. Because we begin in this chapter with great sin. It's there for us to see. But we end in this chapter with this great atonement. God's wrath was released on sinful Israel. God's wrath was restrained from sinful Israel, but now we see that God's wrath is removed from sinful Israel by what David does. And David is instructed to go to the threshing floor of Arana and build an altar to the Lord there. This command seems a little unusual, um, and we're not sure where God is taking David as he gives him in this instruction But it will soon become evident that his statement is both powerful and pregnant with gospel meaning. And how would God remove his wrath from David and sinful Israel? Through an altar and through an atonement. Notice then the cost of the atonement. The sovereign hand of God has been at work here orchestrating not only David's sin and repentance, but now also his restoration. And when God sends David to Arana, he knows what he is doing. He knows why he is doing it. And just, let's just breeze through verses 20 and following. And when Arana looked down and he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him, and Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground, Arana said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? That's usually what you ask when the king shows up at your house. All right? Am I in trouble? What's going on here? And David said to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build a, a, an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. And Arana said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here, you can go ahead, take, take the threshing floor. Right? Do it. Yeah, and here, Here's some oxen for the burnt offering too. And, 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 and the threshing sledges of the yokes you can use for wood. In other words, yeah, go, go ahead and do it. Here's what you need for the sacrifice. Here's what you need for the fire. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for the 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. You see, David understood that it wasn't just about having the altar and the sacrifice, but that had to be something that was costly to him. He understood that true atonement cannot come without a price. Now, we often talk about grace being free, but grace comes at a price, which results then in this free welcoming by by God to those that he is drawing into his kingdom, but there has to be a price, there is a cost, there is a sacrifice that is made to pay for that, Now, notice secondly, the place of atonement, This all took place just outside the city, east and north, um, on the threshing floor of Arana. Now, what's interesting here is this. First of all, Abraham builds an altar on this particular place known as Mount Moriah when he takes his son Isaac to sacrifice him at the Lord's command. Of course, you know the story. At the last, when, when he is ready to, to drive the, the knife into the heart of his son, God provides a lamb or a ram, and they, they offer that as a sacrifice to the Lord. This is the same place. And of course, David here builds an altar to appease the wrath of God on this very mountain, this threshing floor of Arana. But not only that, this is the very place where Solomon would eventually build his temple. And the threshing floor of Arana would be the exact place where the altar in the temple would be built. Turn, if you would please, to the parallel text and kind of explaining what's happening here, 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. I want you to see it. I'm not making this stuff up. 2 Chronicles chapter 3. And notice verse 1. Now Arana is given a, a different name here by the, the name Ornan. And some question there as to Arana being a title more than a name. But notice what it says, then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan or Arana, the Jebusite. What's going on here? David offers the sacrifice. The plague is averted through the sacrifice that is given. So the Lord, it says, responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. So God stays his hand against David and Israel. But David, although now proven to be a repentant, responsible, righteous king, is willing to give his life to save his people, he's still an imperfect king. And David's sacrifice is still an imperfect sacrifice. It is a sacrifice that appeases God. And if you remember, when Solomon builds the temple and has the altar there established, there are sacrifices for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in this very spot. Now, God may stay his hand against David and Israel, but God does not stay his hand against David's descendant, His greater son, Jesus. About a thousand years later, on that same mountain, an altar is built of wood. And on that altar, a sacrifice is nailed in place, held up for all to see. And on that altar, above the sacrifice, are the words written in mockery saying, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that Samuel is ending this book on a downer? The answer is absolutely not. You remember how we started the story? The end of Judges. There was no king in Israel. And everyone did, that was, which was right in his own eyes. And then you have Ruth. And at the end of Ruth, the punchline of Ruth is David in the genealogy, at the end there. No king, David. And as we see the progress through 1 Samuel through 2 Samuel, we see that David is God's chosen earthly king, but he is an imperfect king. He's a righteous king. He is the the greatest king. He is the standard for all kings of Israel and Judah through the ages. But he's still imperfect. But on the same mountain, But this time, the son of David is able to say to God, my life is perfect. I am the spotless sacrifice. Let me die for my people. And Jesus would die as our mediator, as our substitute, as as the sacrifice once for all. And so here at the end of 2 Samuel, the text is screaming at us, you have met God's chosen but imperfect king, and his name is David. But let me introduce you to God's true and perfect king. His name is Jesus. He is the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's the prince of peace. He's the everlasting father. He is the son of man, the lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice. And he has atoned for your sin. By willfully giving up his body and bearing the full weight of the anger and wrath of the Father on his shoulders, he took upon himself the wrath that we deserved and and welcomed us into his family. Friends, I just want to draw some things to a close here. Three concluding thoughts. Number one. This text is is shouting at us that we need humility to be honest about our sin. When we're honest about our sin, then we can truly confess our sin because confession means that we are agreeing with God that what he says about our sin is true. And we need humility to be honest about our sin. But secondly, we need faith Because we can be honest about our sin and still be rebellious. We can know that what God says is true is true and still want to do what we want to do and not be repentant. And so we need faith to believe that repentance is actually required, that it's needed. So humility allows us to see our sin and confess it. Faith allows us to truly believe what God says we need to do about it and then do it. And that is to repent. And repentance is both a turning away from sin, but it's also a turning to God and clinging to him with all that you have. Simply stopping the sin isn't the solution. Justice demands action or repentance on your part. We need humility, we need faith, but hear this. Ultimately, what we need is we need rest. And by rest, I mean Peace, And the only way we can get to that place where there is rest and where there's peace is through Christ himself. This rest, this peace is the fruit of reconciliation which comes through the gospel, which comes through repentance and confession. We rest not in our condition, but because we are now clothed in the robes of Christ's righteousness. We are at peace because he is our great God and savior and there is none other. And we are fully and completely leaning on him. We are satisfied with him. We sing the song, all I have is Christ. And friends, that is all we need. What a powerful ending to an incredible book that takes us right to the cross where Jesus Christ, the greater David, the king of kings, died in our place. Lord, help us to contemplate this, to be in awe of your greatness, to see your word as, as not simply a record of events but an unfolding of your work of redemption through history that takes us to the place where Jesus Christ, our Savior, has died as a sacrifice once for all. Lord, may we be people who lean on you, trust you, hold on to you. And Lord, maybe there's someone here today who has come with discouragement, come with All sorts of of baggage of sin and thinking that there's no way that you would accept them, Lord, would this, this text scream at them that you are a merciful God who forgives, who restores, who brings rest? Oh, Lord, we need you and we celebrate you and we humble ourselves before you because without you, life would be hopeless, life would be empty. And we truly would be in bondage to our sin. Thank you for your kindness to us in your name. Amen.